If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, so what does it actually mean to center the community when creating mental health support? Here's Teresa, co-founder of Asian Counseling and Referral Service, to talk about what it has meant for them. We created spaces that were familiar, where people could see themselves or feel like they belong. But it was also in selecting and training staff. For a while, they were community leaders that were already helping, already available 24-7, already trusted. And we brought them in and gave them jobs. And because of their reputation and their relationship with their own communities, it made it much easier for people to access services. And I always say we use social services as the entree to mental health Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. This episode will continue our focus on mental health, specifically exploring how we can approach it in a culturally responsive manner. This time, we'll be hearing the story of an organization that has prioritized this approach since its inception, the Asian Counseling and Referral Service, or ACRS. Specializing in providing mental health and social services to Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, this organization has about 280 staff, collectively speaking about 40 languages and dialects. It serves more than 35,000 people annually. So, this episode is a founding story. When I mention that, you might immediately think of founding stories like Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, and Jeff Bezos often named as these creative geniuses who bring ideas to life through persistence and tenacity. I think this obsession with individualism in many cultures, specifically Western cultures, perpetuates the belief that one person or company can single-handedly solve a problem. And it's seeped into healthcare too. We think some new company will solve our mental health challenges we face. While there's some value in celebrating those folks for inspiration, what we're doing here is highlighting founding stories rooted in grassroots activism. Stories of communities coming together to address their own needs. Today, you'll hear from Teresa Fujiwara, who co-founded ACRS in 1973 and played a pivotal role in its growth and development as its executive director. She'll share the story of its founding and its unique approach including its origin story involving green tea and the importance of creating a sense of familiarity and belonging within the community. She'll talk about its commitment to building trust 
but meeting patients where they are, even if that means sacrificing chickens. Yep, you'll hear about that too. And she talks about ACRS's approach, which to this day involves providing social services as a gateway to mental health support. Social needs like housing and food security are not only causes of mental health distress, but really can be a way to build trust and support to talk about mental health, which is often so stigmatized. This is a story worth replicating. This is what it means to build a movement within a community, advocating for and taking care of your own people. Here she is, Teresa Fujiwara. Okay. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Thank you. Happy to be here. I usually start out the podcast episode talking about the person. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and about yourself. So I think I'm one of those rare natives. I was born in Seattle and part of a Japanese-American family. Went to school, grade school, high school. Was raised in the Catholic parochial school system and really was quite probably protected and isolated until I got to college. What happened in college? So when I started college, it was the height of the anti-Vietnam War movement a lot of activism on campus. I got involved in that pretty early on. And that was coupled with a lot of the civil rights movements that were emerging at the time. And so just that whole era of social awareness and activism and being part of a collective group to try to bring about change. So I was very much a part of that generation on campus and it really threw me into pursuing much more information about the history of my community, the social injustices in the world, and was a real turning point. And that then affected my career trajectory. Yeah, so very significant. <laughs> That's awesome. How do you define your community when you say you wanted to pursue more work for your community? I think initially it was getting a better sense of the Japanese American community and learning really for the first time the consequences and implications of the incarceration during World War II. I knew about it growing up, but didn't get a lot of information about the systemic injustice of it, more the personal from my parents and my grandparents, that it was a, a severe hardship that they didn't want to talk about a lot wanted to move past, and then weren't uh, motivated to really be activists around it. But of course, I didn't experience it. And as I learned about it, I really wanted to lift up what the discrimination and the oppression that was driving that kind of decision-making and those consequences for a huge group of people in the community. So I'd say it started there, but very easily because, again, I'm a child of the civil rights movement, saw all the similarities of racial injustice with other civil rights issues. And being part of the Japanese-American community, for a lot of folks, they don't know if you're Japanese or Chinese. So that identity began to become more Pan-Asian. And many of the movements or activities I got involved in were broader than the Japanese-American community. 
So very easily made that pan-Asian mentality work. Yeah, that's good. For me, I think about my Indian American identity and how you can start in that specific place, but find a belonging in the broader Asian community as well. Mm-hmm. And I think something you mentioned also struck a chord of how generational knowledge is passed forward, specifically around incidents or historical trauma that people have experienced, especially with Japanese Americans. And I, and I think that's some of the message that the next generation received was part of healing is addressing the historical harm, like the discrimination and prejudice that sometimes still goes on and finding ways to rewrite the narrative of what it means to belong. That's what I'm hearing. What do you think? I, I think you, you heard it accurately. And then the other is we were younger, didn't know what the risks were because we had nothing to lose. And I think we were a little arrogant, but still it laid seed for as we grew older, figuring out how we don't lose the intent to address the injustice, but do it in a way that honors and not threatens the desire to protect oneself in the older generation. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for sharing that. So with that context, how did you become involved with organizations like ACRS? I want to really focus maybe on the founding of that. Tell me a little bit more about your journey into that sector and feeling like this is where I'm going to make change and maybe a brief description of ACRS for people who don't know. (laughs) Okay. ACRS had its 50th anniversary this year. Unfortunately, I was out of the country, but I did help support the event, raise money. And it's, to me, just amazing that it still exists after 50 years. We didn't think that far ahead when we were laying the groundwork for ACRS. But in terms of its stability and its size is really speaks to the need for in the community and the care that has been taken to move it forward. I got involved with ACRS. Again, it was tied to I was into social justice, wanting to make change. I'd been working with a community leader, Bob Santos, and he was just an inspirational leader that I think. If you talk to other folks in the community, I'm sure the name will come up. But it also was a time when the community mental health system at the national level changed. They started emptying out the mental institutions and were promoting community mental health. So all these community mental health centers arose. And there were a few Asian Americans that were working in the mental health field, and they saw that. Their services weren't being requested in the Asian community, and then there were no services provided. So if you look back, you could just even go to the ACRS archives. There was a woman by the name of Sue Tamita who worked at Harborview Mental Health, but reported to a Japanese-American psychiatrist. And she went to him and she said, why are we not seeing any Asians? We know mental illness affects all folks. Now, the stigma attached to it in our communities was also one of the barriers. But he said, just be patient. And so there's this little offer green tea story that's an origin story of ACRS. So this small group of Asian Americans that were already in the mental health field and seeing this gap got together and started at one of the major Asian 
churches in Seattle, Blaine Methodist up on Beacon Hill, started to advertise counseling and nobody showed up. And Sue went to her boss and he gave her $20 and said, buy some green tea. He said, go and prepare tea and just sit there and wait. And it took a few weeks, I believe, but finally somebody showed up. It was just like chairs in a classroom. And that was the beginning. And then people started to trickle in. So there was at least a capacity and more mental health volunteers started to come together. So there was more capacity and it operated out of this church for probably less than a year. But it became clear that there was a need. And if we could match services with need, ACRS could start to establish itself. The development of ACRS, again, was tied to the development of the Asian community. So there was a lot of activism going on in the international district. There was the protests around the kingdom and the infringement of freeways. And so the community started to gel in other ways. And one of those was to recognize the need to start services that were tailored to the Asian Pacific Island community. And so that's when the International Community Health Services started. They're also celebrating their 50th anniversary. The article you read about me was from the International Examiner, which just celebrated their 50th anniversary. <laughs> you know, you can see all these, these things starting to come together and really fuel the enthusiasm and the commitment to moving a cause forward, whether it was health care, mental health care, housing. And so ACRS found space in the International District and then took another step forward in terms of establishing itself. Another one of the uh, pivotal leaders was a professor at the School of Social Work. So my involvement with ACRS was really tied to the fact that I went through the Master's in Social Work program and was able to do my second year placement at ACRS. So for the first few years, ACRS really ran on volunteers and social work. It was a great training ground for students, but it also started to establish a mechanism for addressing mental health needs in the community. We would meet clients in the bar at the restaurant next door because we didn't have counseling space or in the community park. It was very scrappy, but because it was supervised by this professor, Tony Ishisaka, at the School of Social Work, it was quality service. It wasn't just whatever you could do to be supportive. There was a strong clinical program and the students provided the service. And then the turning point for ACRS was Unfortunately, the fall of Saigon and Phnom Penh, the influx of Southeast Asian refugees into the United States, Washington was one of those states that stepped up and took a large number of Southeast Asian refugees. And there was a pause. Is that our community? Are they our constituency? Or do we need to be thinking about how to best serve that population? Because the Asian community, again, is very diverse. Not only in terms of ethnicity, race, it is by immigration experience. 
been so many factors that go into trying to determine whether we really had something to offer and contribute, but we did. So, well, who else is going to do it? So the first full-time paid staff at ACRS was a couple of professionals from the Southeast Asian community. I keep saying Saigon fell on April 15th, and we had a staff person in August of that year. Hmm. And that gave ACRS some grounding, a big federal grant, some resources to really begin to create a more stable organization. Yeah. What a story. I'm going back to how you started that response of the T story, because I do think it's important to highlight even now when we want to design something for the community. I think people think we're going to create it and everybody will be there first day, excited, ready to engage because, hey, this is what people said they wanted. But it takes a long time to build trust. And part of that trust building is showing up consistently, especially with mental health. Like, hey, whenever you need us, we'll be here. I think Mm -hmm. that sense is there with the green tea story. Is that right? I think, yes. Our family would go visit another family. They're serving you tea. They would not think about not serving you tea, right? And so that sort of natural occurrence of recognizing what speaks to your comfort from your culture, I think, was really important. Yeah, so much to learn. I'm going to keep highlighting different perspectives from that story because I'm thinking about how mental health care sometimes feels everybody should want to do virtual first. The idea (laughs) of phone and computer because it's so much more accessible, so much more convenient. Definitely, it's important for a lot of people for mental health because it hasn't been accessible for them previously. But there's importance to physical space and a place where there's some reminder of comfort and familiarity. It's not this either sterile office space with white walls that you go into, very intimidating, or a laptop in your home where it's hard to talk about in this setting. I sense that too. A lot of people need that, especially in certain communities. And I think with Asian communities, when there's so much stigma, that could be part of it too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was part of what ACRS prioritized. So there was that combination of a person they know, they trust, that's now being paid to help them. Our Vietnamese mental health professional, he became a trainer because he was just so good at what he did. But I would say people in the community didn't say, I'm going to ACRS. They say, I'm going to where Mr. Quinn works. So even that sort of identity of a vehicle or an organization, that wasn't the important thing. It was, they knew who he was. They trusted him. He did really excellent work. A lot of folks came to ACRN. Yeah, it meets a fundamental human need to be known. I think that's lost in healthcare often, mental health too, when these big institutions are what we think of, whatever app or big organizations. And I love that story, too, of how it was Mr. Quinn's place we're going to, right? That's why we're going there. Because all organizations and places are made of people. And knowing those people gives you that connection. Another way to, I think, get past that stigma. We're addressing this question, but not directly. So part of the founding was 
making it accessible for folks, creating a space of familiarity. What other ways was it helpful to address the stigma? I think it was being very open to a holistic East-West medicine approach. And somebody might come in and we say they, they're clinically depressed. They see us they, with their bilingual, bicultural counselor. They might see the psychiatrist working at ACRS who might say, you're depressed. I want to prescribe prescription medication. I remember hearing that I'm not depressed, but I, I'm sad. I have trouble sleeping. And between the psychiatrist, the bilingual social worker and the client, they would come to some agreement about when and how medications might be applied, but it might be also done with massage or cupping. Back in the day, people thought cupping, they'd see that, the results, and they think somebody's being abused. Now everybody does it, right? <laughs> but back in the early days, I remember we had practitioners that did cupping and somebody thought they were being abused because it leaves those bruises. Or, you know, we had, I remember a mom client who would take pills, but also needed to sacrifice a chicken. So we would do things like kill. <laughs> so it was a combination of things that they believe would be helpful, given they know their own symptoms combined with a willingness to try Western because of the trust they had with the counselor they had. That's good because we talk about trust in such abstract terms. I think it's helpful to keep talking about that specifically because another point that you made is the entree metaphor about social service of ACRS still to this day. There's a lot of other services, other, right? We tried to categorize yeah. it housing, social isolation, all of these other things. We don't say, oh, it's a mental health counseling place. And I think that helps build trust too in, in communities where there's mental health stigma because you're offering something that seems concrete and material, and that's the opening point to talk about other things. Would you rephrase that different ways? I think it was a natural sort of transition. In the beginning, if we would get a referral of a client that needed mental health care from a mainstream you know, organization, then whoever was working with them would build that relationship, but would see all these other things that are going on in their life and couldn't ignore that if you have housing instability or not enough food or you're worried about a relative that you need to send money to or a number of other aspects of their lives where they needed help, they would naturally do that. They'd see the whole situation. And I think although it may have started with a mental health referral, it quickly turned into a whole range of other kinds of services that people need. Yeah, because it's important. We can't separate out that from mental health and just say, take no. this medication and you'll feel better. Right. <laughs> Wait, right. What about what's actually right. happening? Sometimes nowadays we have these similar instances, we say the team is going to take care of you. So you come to me for a problem, I refer you to another person, I refer you to another person. So I refer you to three different people. And we call it a team. But I think if you're the patient, it feels overwhelming to say I came in for a problem and I have all this, but now I'm supposed to connect with three or four other people about different things. 
And everybody's going to say, the, the other problem you mentioned, I can't really talk about it. Why don't you go back to the other person? That can happen sometimes. And it's evolved in that way because our work has gotten complex. How did you approach that problem too? Because I think, again, they understood that their relationship and their credibility is important. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to let the person down. I think the other piece that really was a, a strong factor is many did not speak English. And so they serve not only as a mental health counselor, but they were their interpreters. They were their trusted navigators and interpreters. And so you couldn't just hand them off. They needed to to be there, even if they needed to go to Department of Social and Health Services to apply for food stamps or whatever. They can't, couldn't do it on their own. They would need somebody that was their interpreter. And the ACRS counselors would serve that role. That made it really hard because you're just busy all the time. (laughs) That just explodes in terms of trying to do everything one client might need. But again, these were folks that were basically, even before they worked at ACRS, were on call 24-7 for their communities. In many ways, they felt privileged to be paid and be affiliated with an organization to do the kinds of support work. How did you approach the communication piece of mental health? As you mentioned earlier, you say depression, somebody's going to say, no, I'm not depressed, I'm sad. I think that can happen in different ways. I've mentioned stories of people saying, I hurt everywhere, I can't sleep. I'm not sad, I just can't sleep at night. I'm not worried, I just keep thinking about things at night. Like, I think it's both the stigma and maybe language. And how do you approach that conversation? I think that we did what we needed to do to get it on paper and as a clinical document. And then the staff person providing the care would do whatever they think was important. I think it was almost funny training people to do clinical notes because at some point we started getting Medicaid reimbursements and we became a part of the system and you have a Hmong staff person who doesn't have a literate language in their own language. There are a lot of challenges. But again, because there were people familiar with the language of the, the clinical language would help translate. You also mentioned the diversity of the providers. Sometimes there's not enough of the community members who can provide the service from formal education pathways. But I find ACRS has been so intentional about finding those people because without those people, this kind of service wouldn't exist. How did you go about building that? I'm probably not the best person to ask because I haven't been there for so long. Our pipeline was through the school social work. Yeah. Connections with the university, their psychology department, and their school social work. And then I think community social workers trying to encourage other people to go into the field. But I think today it's much harder. I'm not exactly sure how they're creating a pipeline to produce folks that are both community minded and have the training and credentials to do mental health work. But with the Southeast Asian staff members that we brought on in 1975, we worked with them. They were incredible 
people, professionals in their own right, but not qualified in it by American standards. So we did first a program with them where they were able to take their lived experience and document it and get BAs from City College. And once they got their BA, then we got them into the MSW program. That's one of the things I just felt really good about is you helping to create this pipeline of folks. And yeah, it was really great. We had, let's see, two Vietnamese, maybe two Cambodian. But anyway, we've had five or six that we actually nurtured through and they got their MSWs. Yeah, it speaks to the success of some programs like community health workers, where you start with the community's expertise first, rather than formal institutionalized knowledge as your pipeline, is how do we build people up from where they are, knowing they're experts of their community. So you started, and as you grew, sure, you started taking care of different kinds of Asian communities and Pacific Islander communities, but the communities are so different. How did ACRS approach that? Because providing culturally responsive care for one community is hard. But when you're talking about Indian and Khmer, that's really different, although we're both Asian. So I think in reflecting back that each community on its own organizes either around a church or a mutual assistance association or a club. But I think because the larger system is so foreign and unresponsive that communities on their own gravitate towards some sense of community-based place. And so we looked at those. We reached out to where organically the communities were coming together based on mostly need, not just because it was social. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it was more around need. But we would recognize that those groupings were coming together, and then we would try to tap into that to say there's some structure here to maybe do some of what you're trying to do. And that's how we identified the natural trusted leaders in the communities as well. But I don't feel like we went out and created that or seeded that. It's a natural community response because... We're all trying to survive in a place that's actually pretty hostile, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it speaks to focusing on relationships and looking for groups that are already forming rather than always trying to create it yourself. You're building relationships knowing that people are doing this themselves because that's what people do in trying to find a collective solution to a common hostile environment they're facing, right? Okay, continuing the question. As ACRS evolved, how did you think about addressing community trauma? We've talked about that a lot, like the Khmer Rouge could be the internment with Japanese Americans. There's all these big events that has happened. And it's so hard to think about what does it mean to heal from that? We brought it up earlier, even for your own family. But what did it look like to talk about it, think about it? I see some of the programs with ACRS, and sometimes it's an unspoken healing, like it's about art. It's about getting together, doing activities, knowing that you've been through something together. I don't don't know the right answer, but I'm curious to hear from you. Yeah, I don't think I know. I know in the Japanese-American community, it always took a couple of folks that needed to talk about it or 
I don't know if you're familiar with Densho, which is a oral history project that it's amazing. And I think that worked even with folks that were reluctant and not feeling like they wanted to go through a healing process by just saying, hey, can we interview you? You are a historical resource. So if you could step into that and serve a purpose other than, Mm. oh, I got to heal. And I've said that with even the younger folks back in the day, it was easier for us to come together to work together as opposed to party together. That social connection was around a common work ethic, which was embedded in community activities. I think there needs to be a purpose to gathering or getting together. I think some people bring people together just to bring people together, and that's hard. And you need to find that common purpose. And although it could be for communities who experience community trauma, as you saw, my bias was, oh, you need to come together to heal. But they could be like, I don't need the healing. I don't know what you're talking about. But I will do work together with my community to change our systems. <laughs> that's caused so much harm. If that's what you want me to do, I'm in. But I don't need to talk about the trauma that I've experienced and find a way to heal from that. Because whether it's explicit or not, changing systems that historically cause discrimination can be healing too. So it, I think sometimes we put it into a box of what it looks like from a Western perspective, whether that's therapy, medication, or something like that. There's other ways to do this too. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why. I just saw a Cambodian rock band. You did? Yeah. I thought that was a healing. Was it just a different way? And a, a completely the young generation, again, lifting it up, but responding to it in a very different way. And it struck me because I've worked really closely with a number of Cambodian leaders who the things they describe, the torture that they endured or saw it imposed on their love. It's just this heart-wrenching. I can't imagine how they felt about all these things. And to see the next generation's response to dealing with that. And everybody has a different way of responding to that, and we need to make room for that too. The evolution of the service delivery system at ACRS yeah. really was the, the foundation for the civic activism that is now rooted at ACRS, the civic engagement work, the citizenship work, the, all that is a natural sort of result of being a strong service organization. That it is the systems change stuff that had to become also a priority for an organization like ACRS. It helps engage and empower people which is so important with this work when you're coming from the community itself. Any other advice for healthcare organizations looking to create the right approach for mental health services for diverse communities? I think they have to invest in the community designing and implementing its own care. It's hard for mainstream systems especially like I think with the Asian community because of the intricacies of the differences amongst different ethnic groups. You know, we're part of something much bigger and no. it's important to, or we can continue to make progress. 
But I don't think the mainstream institutions have to change and they have to change radically. And I don't see that happening. Mm. I would say this is going to sound wonky, but have a good analysis Mm. of what's at the root of the problem and have that shared analysis in relationships with other folks that are going to be alongside to try to make the bigger system changes because it's hard and there are going to be a lot of times when you want to give up. And so we need to lean on each other in our belief that our community assets and strengths and wisdom will actually be a resource that our community needs. Those are wise words. I think that was good. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for spending this time today with me, Teresa. You're a great interviewer. You made it so easy. I don't usually, I go, why do you want to talk to me? I don't have much to share. I'm the senior brain now. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode, Healthcare for Humans. If you liked this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org to sign up to be part of the community. And lastly, thank you to Tessa Chu for supporting this podcast, making sure it's the best it can be, and helping with the creation and the production of all parts of this podcast. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Krakover, helps people think critically about women's health issues encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App, and that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.